It looked fun, but it looked tiring <laughs> for us old guys, huh? Hey, good morning. Glad you guys are here. Uh, if you didn't get a chance to go to the Wild Game Feed, you missed out. It was just a great time. You know, I grew up in Southern California, so I did not ever handle guns. The only kids that handled guns in my neighborhood were those in gangs, so there you go. But uh, God is good, and, and at the end, there were two baptisms that were planned. One, I believe, was planned, and then his wife joined him, and, and it was just great. But in honor of uh, last night, I, I, I'm going to, uh, in a moment, show you a drawing. And it's a, it's a duck, you know, and uh, it's facing south, and so you're, you're going to see its bill headed that way and uh, looking south. And so, uh, Jory, would you go ahead and put it up on the board? Can you, can you see the duck? Yeah? Okay, very good. Okay, you can take the picture down, Jory. Um, Today, we're going to experience a paradigm shift. Now, that's a fancy word. In fact, I'm going to have a definition for you in a moment. But a paradigm shift means that you are going to suddenly look at something completely different. Your understanding, your view is going to be changed. Somewhat like a paradigm shift happened when we used to think that the earth was the center of our solar system. And everything revolved around the earth. And then later on, we found out, no, the sun is the center of our solar system. And we revolve around the sun. That is called a paradigm shift. It's not just a a minor change. It is a radical understanding that has changed from your previous conceptions. Now, in a moment, I'm going to show you another picture. It's another drawing, but it is of a rabbit, and it is facing that direction. Jory, can you show that picture? Can you see, can you see the rabbit? Okay, how many of you saw the duck? How many of you saw the rabbit? You still see the duck. Okay, Think of the... No, we won't even go there. That, what you just experienced, was a paradigm shift. You thought it was a picture of a duck, when in reality, for my illustration purposes, it is really a rabbit. That is a paradigm shift. Something has changed radically in your understanding. And today, we are going to have a, a paradigm shift in regards to what we do here, on Sunday mornings at 8 o'clock or 10.30 or what we're doing throughout the week. And here's the first fill in the blank, so I hope you have your sermon outlines. The paradigm shift is this. Worship, or you can even say a worship service as an event, is now going to be changed in your thinking that it is a way of life. Your worship service does not start at 8 o'clock. Your worship service started when you woke up this morning and you had a conscious thought. Your worship service might have happened all night long because you were awoke. Or, oh, oh, thank you. <laughs> you were awakened and you had a chance to think about God. You had a chance to talk to Him. That's a, that is a way of life. And so Paul... In the very first few chapters, actually the first 11 chapters of Romans, is going to change the Jews who he's writing to. He's going to write to the church, but he's primarily writing to the Jews. He is going to cause them to have a paradigm shift. Their thoughts were, you work your way to heaven. You are good, you offer sacrifices on an altar, 
And if you are good and you hold to all the laws of the old covenant, you get salvation. And Paul writes the most beautiful thesis in the entire world. Scholars have said that. Even non-Christians have said what Paul was able to write in Romans is, is far beyond Aristotle or Socrates or Plato or any of those guys. Paul holds that honor because he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And not only that, but he's now going to shift their thinking about salvation to it only comes by the grace of God as a gift. That's a paradigm shift. To go from working to get to heaven to it is a free gift in Jesus Christ. And that's what he's going to do. And, and that's really what he did for the first 11 chapters. And our text is going to start with the word therefore. Why is it therefore? Because it's pointing back to these first 11 chapters. And so, we're going to find out what Jesus meant when he told the woman at the well, an hour is coming where the Father desires the true worshipers to worship in spirit and in truth. And Paul's going to unpack this for us in these two little verses. So I hope you have your Bibles with you. I need you to turn to Romans chapter 12. We're going to pick it up at verse 1, and it is the conclusion, the beginning of the conclusion for Paul and his paradigm shift from earning your salvation to salvation is a gift. Beginning at verse 1, it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. <laughs> this, this text is just full of words that we need to just kind of unpack a little and, and talk about. And, and this first word uh, is appeal, and, and I'm reading it out of the ESV. Some of your versions will say, I urge you by the mercies of God. Or in my text, it says, I appeal to you. And it's a very interesting word. It's the same word Jesus calls the Holy Spirit up in the upper room, the paraclete. It's the comforter. It's the counselor. It's the one who guides. It's the same root word of appeal, our urge. And so he is coming at them, not coercively, but as that mentor, as one who says, I'm begging you. You've got to see this. I'm counseling you. You are here, and this is how you need to respond to these first 11 chapters, that grace is a gift. It's a very, very strong word. But it also comes with an appeal of encouragement. And then he goes on and he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Well, what are the mercies of God that he just talked about? Salvation, righteousness, there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, that you've been united with Christ, that you are a new creation, the old is gone, the new has come. There are so many things that we get. We have forgiveness. We have peace with God. We who were once dirty and alienated and at war with God are now right with God. I mean, chapters 1 through 11 just un 
unfold this before our very eyes. And so he's now reaching back to those earlier statements and saying, by God's great, wonderful mercies that he has given you, I'm urging you in light of that fact, and then he's going to go on. And I love what it says out of 1 Peter, tying it in that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you now may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his light. The 11, 1 through 11 is about the process, how God took us out of darkness into his marvelous light, and it was a gift. And then he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present. It means the idea of surrendering up or yielding or offering your gift to the Lord. It's the technical term that the Levitical priests used when they would go and offer a sacrifice on the altar at the temple. It's that same word for present. See, anybody can give a sacrifice. An unrepentant man can come and and give a sacrifice, but that's not the idea of this presentation that we are to present humbly before God, hoping that it will be acceptable, presenting it, and then it goes on. He goes on, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by all the things that God has done for you to come humbly before him and present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, all the other sacrifices have been dead. And suddenly there's another paradigm shift. We're going from a dead sacrifice to now a living sacrifice. Jesus was the last sacrifice of the Old old Covenant. By his blood, he has allowed us to enter into a new covenant, a new agreement with God. No longer do we have to live by rules, but now we get to live in a living relationship with Christ, with God himself. Living sacrifice is a sacrifice that lives. It perpetually lasts. It's never burnt up. It's not a one-time event. This new kind of worship is ongoing. It's perpetual, a perpetual offering of our life. And so it's not an event, it's, it's a way of life. There's a willingness in it to surrender all of your hopes, all of your dreams, all that you are. Basically, everything that you've ever hoped to become or be or purpose, it's encapsulated in this willingness to come before God and just say, God, here I am. In light of all the things that you have done for me, understanding all the beautiful, beautiful things, I come and I'm going to present myself before you as a living sacrifice that's acceptable. You know, Cain approached God on Cain's terms when we see the first sacrifices being offered. And then you see Abel approaching God on his, God's terms And God accepted Abel's sacrifice, but rejected Cain. And then if you remember what happened in that history, he comes back to Cain and says, Cain, you know the right thing to do. Now get after it. 
Otherwise, sin is crouching at its door, and its desire is to master you. But I am with you, and we can do this. Cain didn't want to do it God's way. He wanted to do it his way. And so this this whole concept that we're going to present our, our lives to God, and that it would be accepted, that it's acceptable, holy and acceptable to God. And then it says, which is your spiritual worship? It's an interesting word. It's not the normal word for spirit. Lava us have pneumatic tires. That means we put air in our tires. And air references wind or spirit. And so the, the original word for spirit is, is pneuma. But that's not the word here. It's, in, in fact, I'll, I'll show you what the word is. I have a trouble pronouncing it, as you can probably imagine. But logikos, which is the word that is translated spiritual. But look what it is. It's the term from which we get logic and logical. So Paul says, here is your logical worship. Here is your reasonable, your rational service. In fact, some of your texts have a footnote starred next to the word spiritual. If you go down in your footnote, you'll see that it says rational. That our only choice after all that God's done for us, the only logical thing to do is to say, God, here I am. Here I am. Yes, our offerings are to God from the heart, and they they do have a spiritual component. But in light of everything He's done for us, our only reasonable, logical thing to do is to give Him everything, to present to God everything that we are and everything that we have. And then this word worship. It's not the word that's normally translated worship. When the Magi come to bow down before Jesus, it's not that word. It's not the word that's used when Mary at the tomb grabs onto Jesus and it says she worshiped him. It's not that term either. It's not the term that's used when Jesus meets the 11 in Galilee and it says they bowed down and worshiped him and he gave the great commission. It's a different word. It's only used five times in the New Testament, and it means service. Here's the definition. It's the term for service, rendering outward religious action. Ah, Paul is tying it back to that old paradigm. He is saying it is the word that's used for the Levitical priesthood offering the sacrifices. That was their service. Paul's tying it together. Now, you're offering your own life, then you are truly offering your service to Him. It's not 8 o'clock. It's not 10.30. That's not the service that we tend to think of. It's a service that you're continually presenting yourself before God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Because of all that God has done for you, the only logical thing to do is now to offer yourself up to Him. I don't know how many of you remember the, the last episode of Seinfeld. Did any of you see that? Okay, let's just skip this part of the slide service. Now, they, if you remember the end, I'll tell you, they, if you've ever watched the show, 
this show, they're the most selfish people in the world, and at the end, they get their comeuppance. They are culpable. It's a big word. It's a legal term. It means that their inaction allowed somebody to get robbed. They watched. They laughed. They filmed it as it was happening, and then they got hauled into court and put in prison or jail because of it. Here's the definition of culpability. It's a measure of degree to which a person can be held morally or legally responsible for her action or inaction. And Paul is basically saying, you guys have God. And if you do, don't do anything about it, you are culpable. And let me tell you what you are to do about it. You are to offer yourself up as a living sacrifice. And you are then to be conformed according to the verse do not be conformed to this war world. J.B. Phillips' famous translation catches the essence of, of the phrase, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. The word conformed is when we allow it, when we allow it to be done to ourselves. Christ is in you. You're a new creation. But the world is bearing down its pressure on you. It wants to pattern you after the world. And the word world doesn't mean world, it means age. After the the spirit of this age. Don't succumb to cultural pressure, is what he's saying. To live outside of the new creation that you are. Don't allow it to happen. And then he says, be transformed. It's the word metamorphosis. When, When we go from a caterpillar to a butterfly it is that radical transformation that's happening changing your outward appearance to match the new you inside the new creation that you are righteous thinking and behavior start to match with righteous action you know ephesians says this ephesians says that we are seated in the heavenlies with christ basically We are up here. Let's say this platform is heaven. We are seated positionally with Christ. But the reality is that we also live down here. And the renewing of our mind is that we want to get there. That's where we are positionally, but this is where I live. And if I stay down here, the world will corrupt me. The world will, will suddenly have its ill effects on me. But the renewing of our mind means that I am pursuing here. I'm not going to stay on the ground. I'm going to rise above. The, the song that we just sang talked about rising with Christ, being raised, keeping our eyes on Him. We're being raised above. That's transformation. If we stay on the floor, we're not being transformed. But transformation means that The new you is starting to come outward. You're starting to be changed from the inside out. We're being testing and discerning, differentiating between God's righteousness and beauty and the world's ugliness. And when you choose, you yield yourself to be changed by God, by the Spirit of God. And not the spirit of this age. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. You know, any guy can cheat. 
Any guy, any guy can lie. Any guy can be selfish. Any guy can take the low road. And it takes transformation to come and not be that guy. It takes a real man to be transformed towards righteousness. It's so easy to be unrighteous. But to be transformed is a higher calling. And we're all called to it. To see that which is good and acceptable and pure and beautiful in our lives. And, and one way we can sum up verse 1 is this. In the light of all God has done for us, the only reasonable thing to do is to give Him everything. The second way we could sum up verse 2 is this way, and it's your fill in the blank. A worshiping life is a life that is being transformed. Worshiping life is a life that is being transformed. The renewing of your mind is the climbing of the stairs. You're here positionally, but where you live is down there. And in order to get up here, in order to let the new creation that you've been called to come out, you have to climb the stairs. You have to renew your mind. You have to be transformed by Him, by being yielded. So now we have to ask the question, what does a worshiping life look like? Turn quickly to Colossians. Colossians was written, and Paul's going to also do a therefore statement talking about how we are new creations in Christ. And he begins chapter 3, if you've been raised with Christ, keep your eyes on him. But if you drop down in chapter 3 of Colossians, verse 2, I mean, to verse 12, it says then, put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. That deep gut level feeling of compassion towards others and have kindness. That good Samaritan kind of kindness. The binding up of the wounds of your enemy kind of kindness. And then he says, with humility, Thinking of others first. Not thinking less of yourself, just thinking less of yourself. To play on words. Not thinking less of yourself, but thinking about yourself less. And then he goes on and says meekness. Meekness is power under control. That you're willing to suffer and not take your own revenge. You look at your life situation or your circumstances and in meekness you say, God, I don't understand what you're doing, but I'm not going to rail against it. I'm not going to fight against it. I understand that you have a purpose in it. I'm not going to take matters into my own hands is meekness. You have the power to do it. It has nothing to do with weakness. It means that you are going to be content and let God work it out. And then he goes on to to talk about patience and bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, you must also forgive. Verse 14, and above all, above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Without love, all you have is legalism with moral platitudes and moral attitudes. But here's where I want to camp for just a moment. Verses 15, 16, and 17. Look at the text. And let the peace of Christ 
rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Here's the first fill in the blank for that part of the sermon outline. What a transforming, worshiping life looks like. The peace of Christ rules your heart. And it's not the word rule that means that you are under subjugation to an authority. It is the, the word that's used for umpire. In other words, you are allowing Christ, the peace of Christ, to come in and help you make decisions in your life, giving you peace. Not only do you have peace with God, but you have peace in your decision making. What should I do? Where should I go? Where should I work? What am I supposed to do? How am I to live? What kind of man am I supposed to be? What kind of woman am I supposed to be? What am I supposed to think about these issues that are culturally relevant? And it says that the peace of God is the umpire of your heart. It calls a fastball a fastball, a strike a strike, and a ball a ball. It is the umpire that lives within you. Yes, Christ sits on your throne and He is the Lord and in that way He is your ruler. But it says the peace of Christ umpires your heart. You make decisions that allow you to renew your mind to move forward. And then go back to the text, verse 16. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teaching, which is the do's, And admonishing, those are the don'ts, one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The Word of Christ dwells in you richly as a transforming, worshiping life. And as it dwells, it overflows. And you're speaking and you're thinking with wisdom. And whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, whatever is pure, whatever is commendable, all the things that are righteous and beautiful and pure in your life suddenly come and they just they flow out of you. You just can't help. Because the higher up you come, the more you see how God is doing wonderful things in your life. When you stay down in the lowlands, you have a trouble seeing how good God really is. But when we renew our minds, we're able to come up and start to match who we are positionally, the new creature. And our, our life begins to be transformed right in front of our eyes. We we don't even know it's happening. It just starts to happen when we allow the Word of Christ to dwell in us richly. When we have this hidden in our heart, it just starts to flow out of us. We don't have to contrive it. We don't have to make it. We just have to be yielded to it. Hebrews says, through Him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God That is the fruit of our lips that acknowledge His name. Do not neglect to do good and to share with what you have for such sacrifices God is well pleased with. But it is the fruit of our praise that comes out of a grateful heart. I love that just like you live in your home, the word dwell means that, to to be comfortable in your home. To dwell means to take up residence. And when you let the Word of God dwell in your heart, take up residence in your heart, and you are comfortable with the Word of God, we begin to live a life of worship. And then let's read the last verse. 
Verse 17, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is what happens. The will of Christ is lived out in your life. Whatever you do, do it for Jesus, his purposes, his love, his glory. And then Paul's going to go on in the rest of the chapter and said, Christianity can't affect your society if it doesn't even affect your home life. Did you catch that? And he goes on and he says, if Christ is in you, you're going to be a new husband. And if Christ is in you, you're going to be a new wife. And if Christ is in you, you're going to to be a new child. And if Christ is in you, you're going to be a new employee. And if Christ is in you, you're going to be a new employer. If Christ is in your life, you are being transformed if you're allowing Christ to dwell in you. His peace, the Word, and everything you do or say. See, God changes us when we we yield our life to Him. It's interesting that there's there's such a perfect illustration. This this is a glow stick. How many of you are familiar with glow sticks? I hope you are. You know, the only way a glow stick is transformed by breaking it. When you break a glow stick, you release the power of transformation. And as I'm breaking this, you can start to see it's changing. Paul is urging us, telling us that by offering up our life and allowing God to break it, that's when the power is released to change and transform our life. And without the breaking of your life, there is no transformational power being released. You will stay on the ground, and though your position is in Christ, you will not live like it. You will not have victory. You will be succumbed to the cultural issues that face us. But when we offer our life as a living sacrifice to be broken, transformation comes. I want to be transformed. Do you? I'm going to ask that you stand and sing a song of invitation that the Lord would break you so that you could be transformed and that you become a living sacrifice, the beautiful one for His glory. A broken life is a worshiping life. A broken life isn't something that happens at 8 o'clock on a Sunday morning. It is a continual offering up of yourself. In a moment, you're going to come before His table. A time of rejoicing, but a time of reflection. A time of asking the Lord to break you so that you may glow for Him. Because you're offering not just words, but your life. Please be seated.